This episode of Into the Night was made possible by the unwavering support of our dedicated Patreon donors. Their generosity allows us to delve deeper into the mysteries that await us in the dark world of Finance of Freddy's. If you're captivated by the secrets we unveil and wish to be part of our journey, we invite you to explore our Patreon page. By becoming a patron, you not only gain exclusive access to bonus content, behind-the-scenes insights, and special perks, but you also play a vital role in sustaining the future of this podcast. Visit the link provided in the description below to learn more and join our community of avid night explorers. The following episode will contain spoilers for Security Breach Ruin. If you have yet to experience the game and its story and do not wish to be spoiled, we recommend you listen to another episode in our playlist. I would also want to preempt before the episode starts that views shared in this video are 100% my own. And while they cast Security Breach, Ruin, and Steel Wool in a negative light, it shouldn't take away from the enjoyment you or others may have found in the DLC. This is simply the opinion of someone who has been with the franchise since Finance of Freddy's 2, and who has grown weary and now a bit tired of the self-destructing cycle that I believe the current series has found itself in. And now, on to the show. Hello, and welcome to Shadow Scrying, the official sister series of the Into the Night podcast. As always, I am your host, Nick, and thank you for listening. At last, Security Breach Ruin has been released, generating an avalanche of excitement across the community, especially on Twitter. The game has been dubbed the epitome of FNAF, verging on a meme status with how the community has been praising the game. Less than 24 hours after release, Twitter and Reddit were flooded with posts stating, This is peak FNAF, mimic sweep, and I cried when Roxanne did the thing. Launched on November 25th, 2023, Steel Wool's Ruin Free DLC for Security Breach introduced players to Cassie, a brand new character in the series. She embarks on a mission through the abandoned Freddy Fazbear Mega Pizzaplex to rescue her friend Gregory, who's trapped beneath it. Armed with just a flashlight and a Roxy-talkie, Cassie must navigate through the ruined Glamrock animatronics patrolling the decay corridors, all while evading a glitching rabbit creature that stalks her. Admits the widespread acclaim, the question remains, does the game live up to the hype? And furthermore, do I hold it in the same regards as so many others do? The following is Nick's honest reaction after beating Security Breach Ruin live on stream. I do not even want to touch Security Bleach ever again. I wish that literally nothing past UCN was made. Post Shift 2 is a better FNAF experience than Security Breach. I don't want to touch FNAF for like 24 hours after that. I feel unclean. I feel dirty. I would rather have Michael get just shot in the head immediately. We're going to find out the answer to all our questions. And Tales from the Pizza Plex book number 8, out now, not 10 dollars per, per, per page. I didn't spend money on this, yet somehow I feel I feel like I've been conned. This thing takes up 150 f***ing gigabytes. I'm gonna eat my own hand. You got an end credit scene at least? No, I, I can't do it anymore. No, nope, not even end credit scene. We su I suffered through credits for nothing. Yeah. No. While it is true that Security Breach Ruin effectively incorporates the books into its main game storyline, which is something many have wanted to see, 
and the experience is enhanced by the impressive graphics and captivating imagery. Ruin stumbles in terms of storytelling and worldbuilding through logical and objective flaws in the game's writing. The story heavily relies on external media sources for plot comprehension and leaves many mysteries and questions from Hell 1 and the Security Breach unanswered. Where revelations do occur, they often prove unsatisfying, and the narrative concludes abruptly with an intentional cliffhanger, hinting at forthcoming sequels. Now, this might sound harsh, especially if you watch my YouTube stream of Ruin, where I might have come across as despising the game, even more than Security Breach. However, the reality is much more nuanced. There are many things to praise about Ruin and the efforts Steelwool clearly put into the project. Ruin significantly enhances the visuals and atmosphere of the base game, aligning better with the dark and unsettling essence that made the original game so popular. It can even be argued that its gameplay represents an evolved version of FNAF's familiar loop, excluding such a location which did its own thing. On the surface, Ruin does appear to successfully redeem Steelwool. The fandom wouldn't be raving about the game if it didn't prove their capacity to craft an impressive standalone game. It restored faith in Steelwool's stewardship of the FNAF franchise for many, especially in terms of official game releases. Additionally, it gratifies theorists who invested time and money in the Tales from the Pizzaplex series. For those hardcore fans who have been reading every single entry in the series, Ruin does provide a sought-after payoff that many could have been looking for. Now, is it peak FNAF? No, not even close. The game retains noticeable flaws that can't be disregarded. Even though it's a significant improvement over its predecessor's failures, it still never reaches the heights that a smaller game, made by one man, had been able to achieve with a much smaller time frame and a much smaller budget. Being blinded by a few upsides shouldn't automatically disregard the numerous downsides that also exist. No matter what the project, if you ignore any and all faults with the product, it shows a lack of care and critical objective thinking. I get, as a fan of the series, the love you have for it can make it hard to ignore your emotions and an unconscious bias that you want something you spent so much time investing in to be good. But if you truly care about a series and want it to be the best it can be, the best for everyone, new or old who comes into it, then you have to be able to both accept and say hard truths. You must be able to separate the good from the bad and weigh them both to determine the quality of an entry to a series. I love FFPS. As an entry for the narrative, it was an amazing conclusion to the series that clearly had a lot of thought and love put into it by Scott. But... Just because I acknowledge that its story and characters are amazing, I am not going to pretend that the night gameplay isn't absolutely atrocious with little redeeming qualities. Yes, by proxy, it's cool that the Mimic, a character introduced in the books, is in the game. It isn't a surprise the Mimic is in the game, the writing for that was on the wall. What's important to note is that a theory being correct doesn't guarantee an engaging story, and trying to fulfill expectations doesn't guarantee a flawless execution on the writer's part. For those who anticipated the Mimic's inclusion, those on Twitter who salivated and dedicated half a year arguing online about the merits of his existence in the games, ask yourself this. 
Was its integration eloquent and accessible enough for everybody besides yourself? Did the narrative offer a satisfying reveal, a coherent journey, and a payoff worthy of the buildup to those who will be experiencing the DLC and the Mimic for the first time? Maybe these people don't like to read books as a pastime and prefer video games. Is it still enjoyable for them that they haven't read the books? And the Mimic, while the major point that surrounds pretty much the entirety of the discourse surrounding Ruin's story, only serves as a mere fragment within the game's broader narrative. Did the game's experience hold up? Wasn't sufficiently replayable and distinctive for its medium? Given FNAF's position in the horror genre, did it deliver palpable tension and offer a genuinely horrifying experience? Being a sequel to a major game of the series, did it effectively expand on its predecessor, justifying its place with the overarching world and narrative? Considering these aspects and looking beyond the aesthetics, the impressive graphics, and fan service for Roxy enthusiasts and Mimic stands, that is what we will be going over tonight. In this review slash analysis of Security Breach Ruin, we will be going over the graphics, atmosphere, gameplay, and story. We will be reviewing Ruin as an average FNAF fan who only plays the game. After all, Ruin only states that it recommends playing Security Breach before playing Ruin, indicating that one only needs to be aware of the previous entries in the FNAF game series to enjoy the Ruin experience. With that context in mind, we will be trying to give a fair, honest, and objective analysis of Ruin's game design and narrative direction, whilst being fair and acknowledging the emotional thinking that could be elicited from players, in particular those who are more emotionally tied to the series or those who have read the Tales from the Pizzaplex books. Yet, still keeping in mind what came beforehand and if Ruin still lives up and builds upon what the series had left behind. Once again, I hand it to Steelwool. They, they know how to make an environment look beautiful. Let's commence our assessment on a positive note. The graphics. Ruin undoubtedly stands out as the most visually stunning entry of Five Nights at Freddy's. Steelwool has a mastery in crafting visually appealing 3D games, and they've only been getting better and better at it. While Help One and Security Breach, also developed by Steelwool, boasted impressive graphics, the games occasionally suffered from textured issues or overly demanding graphical requirements for PCs. Examples include the toy animatronics, plastic shells, and help wanted, and certain elements like television graphics and banners and security breach. In Ruin, players will experience consistent graphic optimization throughout their playthrough. I personally had no glitches during my sessions except after the game was taken over by a cutscene, and occasionally graphics would be slowed to load in upon respawning after a death. The initial two hours submerged me in the game's world, all thanks to its graphics. The Pizzaplex takes on a more authentic and gritty vibe, replacing the almost dreamlike aesthetics in Security Breach. With no bright lights to help find your way and graffiti belighting the walls, the story expertly displays how the place is falling apart. The dust particles and roaches and mist pools of refuse efficiently communicate a sense of decay and will heighten the worry of any traveling in such an eclectic environment. The animatronic models have also improved. Characters like the daycare attendant in Ruin Freddy 
are extremely creative in how they are falling apart. Each animatronic uniquely bears the mark of time, wear, and possibly even fire on its rigid plastic frames and inner mechanics. Unfortunately, none of their designs capture the same uncanny appearance of the withered animatronics, nor are they as disturbing and creepy as even the original band. They are fine attempts and improvements over the original Glamrock designs, which didn't fit a horror game aesthetic, and while this was the intent in their designs and security breach, without any way of twisting them, similar to how Scott used the toy animatronics, they never truly felt like terrifying monsters players had to be wary of. The most impressive visuals in the game are offered by the VANNI network, also known as AR Vision. Following the game's prologue, Cassie acquires a security mask reminiscent of Vanny's mask as seen in Help Wanted. When Cassie puts it on, it allows her to experience an alternate reality, AR, vision, that turns the entire Pizzaplex into a more digital experience. Now in gameplay, the effects are similar in function to that of Eagle Eye from Assassin's Creed or Detective Vision in the Batman Arkham games. But while the feature isn't original, what makes it stand out is how players perceive the world now. It doesn't just put a filter on the player's vision and has certain objects glow. They take the concept that you are looking through the world in a lucid dream and run with it. You look at objects closely and you can see grid lines of code. Purple static obscures glass partitions limiting your view, intermittently revealing unsettling eldritch eyeballs peering back at you. Strangely, by merely donning the mask, Cassie also gains the power to somehow manipulate reality. By performing certain actions, Cassie can walk through physical objects, like stacks of boxes or walls, effortlessly while wearing the mask. However, once the mask is removed, the objects are still present in reality and are unchanged, as tangible and physical as ever. Hilariously, this effectively makes Noclip a canon feature in the world of Final Fantasy so... You know... Eat your heart out, people who criticize the animatronics clipping in the vents of FNAF 2. It was all always because of the lore. What? The lore! The lore, guys! The lore! The Venny Network truly enabled Steelwool to unleash some really imaginative imagery with the excuse of it being an AR experience. From enormous bowling balls denting Bonnie Bowl lanes to candy clouds floating above the intricate daycare, the mask effects are wildly unpredictable, but always a spectacle to behold. Cassie even traverses static-veiled white doors, transporting her to diverse areas, including seemingly digital spaces that resemble the Pizzaplex's security network. Now, I'm not trying to hype the visuals up. This is no Last of Us or Devil May Cry. You will absolutely encounter numerous moments in the game that may not be awe-inspiring visually, but there are enough moments that are striking that they will be etched into a player's memory even after the game is finished. Some of the most insane moments in the game are when an endoskeleton emerges from the Pizzaplex's theater silver screen, or an underground cavern beneath the Pizzaplex that reminds you of a really high-resolution dungeon in a fantasy adventure game. This is Security Breach Ruin's highest point. It is a beautiful-looking game. Not the most realistic, but its style is unique. Not the most awe-inspiring, but still visually creative. I will say, I also do appreciate they're putting a lot of emphasis on how destroyed the place is. I mean, look at how crappy it is. Look how much stuff has just fallen over. 
While graphics are one thing, it's another to capitalize on them and establish an amazing atmosphere for the player. A common criticism of Secure Breach is that it lacked a true horror feel. Ruin attempts to redesign the environment to better exude that same aura that the original FNAF games were known for. Before release, Stewell acknowledged that the previous game's overly bright and expensive setting contradicted FNAF's essence, and the best moments in the game were when players were locked in a room with an animatronic and needed to find a way out. Ruin focuses on these moments and attempts to expand them to be more or less the whole game. These segments were few and far between in the base game, but the daycare, the endo warehouse, and the DJ Music Man fight were practically unanimously regarded as the only segments in Security Breach that made it memorable or engaging. Moments of claustrophobic tension, unknown threats who behaved in odd ways, and an overall sense of helplessness. This is what makes Five Nights at Freddy's so good and memorable. And as stated before, it's evident that the setting and tone have notably improved. Upon Cassie's entry into the Pizzaplex, the stark sense of abandonment and decay, bridging the gap from Gregory's time to the present, is palpable. Preceding any animatronic or paranormal encounter, the environment subtly conveys instability. Staff bots glitch upon approach, elevators snap from their cables, and passages teeter on the brink of collapse. Contrary to Security Breach's open-world style, Ruina also opts for a more linear approach to exploration, eliminating unnecessary travel between set pieces. This improves the experience on a small scale, as movement and travel in Security Breach was problematic. The absence of quest markers and the distance between set pieces on the map caused navigation issues and long stretches of boring downtime with no challenge. Moreover, during the decommissioning phase of Security Breach, the game's guidance becomes so muddled and confusing as it isn't communicated at all where the player needs to go. The player is just informed to destroy the other animatronics, and this results in a diverse play experience based on which escape route the player took early on. If the player had picked the kitchen, great, they have a pretty good idea where to go to destroy Chica, and there are enough hints to let them know where exactly they need to be, especially if they then chose to go to Bonnie Bowl. Oh, but if the player picked the VIP lounge or tried to find a way to deactivate Monty or Roxy? Oh, you are absolutely screwed without a guide. Security Breach's gameplay can be best summarized as an extensive fetch quest simulator. Gregory's journey primarily revolved around obtaining items to proceed. However, when reaching the location to obtain a necessary quest item, the player progress is usually blocked. This often entails fetching a second item needed to access the first, often located on the other side of the map. Once you get the secondary item, you now have access to the first item, which gives you access to a brand new area where a third item resides, but blocked off until you obtain a fourth item you never knew about. This process repeats for eight hours. The linear approach to storytelling and set pieces in Ruin effectively eliminates all the unnecessary roadblocks that serve nothing but to waste time in Security Breach. Ironically, and this has nothing to do with Ruin at all, but Security Breach also inadvertently demonstrates and Ruin confirms that the open-world exploration approach doesn't harmonize with FNAF's take on horror games at all. Grounded in closed-off spaces, surviving against inanimate enemies, and pervasive helplessness isn't exactly applicable with a big world you are free to run around in. 
Ruin's approach to direct players in a straight line of events and emphasis on closed up environments improve the experience and match more closely to the original Five Nights at Freddy's style of horror. Now, a problem that goes against the atmosphere of the game is the set piece jump scares which become bothersome after a while. Frequent cutscenes throughout the game relinquish control from you, often resulting in low impact jump scares. This approach, though effective early on in startling players, quickly becomes predictable over a short period of time. Frequent control seizures and cutscene interruptions not only dampen replay value, but also make the player more accustomed to the game's tricks faster. Because of how often the game takes control away from the player, it becomes a predictable sign to them of imminent danger, effectively eroding the suspense it's trying to build. Whenever the game takes control, a player's subconscious will acknowledge that this usually foreshadows a jump scare cutscene or a new threat emerging, which undermines the intended impact of a sudden scare or the appearance of an enemy. An example of the game handling predetermined set pieces well is the ruined Chica stalking section. It handles them adequately. Though scripted, player-controlled immersion isn't disrupted when Chica stumbles into their path. They are given enough space to back up, recognize the threat, without getting killed by the game's cheap trick, as the game never took control away from them during the process. This creates a sense of proximity with unsettling characters, similar to Sister Location's Ballora Gallery section, and forces the player to be more on alert for any other sudden threats. Moreover, excessive interruptions in gameplay through cutscenes diminish the game's replay value. When a game keeps breaking your gameplay flow, this will often lead to frustration during repeated playthroughs. Cutscene segments are great for when you're first playing through. Stuff like Monty's Gone Love Ride showing, Phasma Entertainment's cover-up for why Bonnie's missing, or Gregory finally contacting you for real at the start of the Mimic Chase are all really cool on the first playthrough. But they are also unskippable and very, very long. An odd choice considering that every modern game on the planet allows you to skip segments like this, or at the very least gives you the option to on a repeated playthrough. Even stranger, considering that the base game of Security Breach actually thrived off of speedruns and repeated playthroughs because the game often never took control away from the player. Now, it didn't thrive at all in the way Steel intended it to, but it still attracted an audience to the game because of it. It just so happened to be the same audience Sonic 06 attracted upon its release. The speedrunner and make it fun of bad games crowd. Personally, I enjoy it when a game allows me to maintain my game flow state as much as possible. This is the reason why I love Nintendo titles like Mario, Zelda, and Pikmin, which maintain an unbroken flow when you are in the game and are all designed to have high skill ceilings where if you put enough time to the mechanics of the game, you can pull off some really incredible feats. Reflect on how in the original Security Breach, the sudden control shifts were jarring due to their rarity. Like with leaving the pizza plex in a cutscene place where Gregory turns around and talks to Freddy, the transition was awkward and didn't feel right, besides the emotion they were trying to desperately display to make you feel bad Gregory and Freddy were going to be separated when they didn't have enough time to build on that rapport and just told us it existed. It would be a shame if they did that again in Ruin, wouldn't it? Once you know these unskippable events are going to happen, it can be rather frustrating to have to endure every single cutscene again and again and again on subsequent playthroughs. This pattern of game interruption continues throughout Ruin 
and it detrimentally impacts the gameplay, and more so, makes the atmosphere they were trying so hard to build falter because of their abuse of these cheap jump scare tricks. And this is before we get on how the gameplay itself is already grating, uninteresting, uninspiring, and repetitive. Well, with that outtake, I guess we should probably get into discussing the gameplay, shouldn't we? Tonight's episode is sponsored by Marvel Strike Force. Marvel Strike Force is an incredible mobile game that lets you take command of your own team of your favorite Marvel superheroes and villains to take on interdimensional threats like Doctor Doom and Apocalypse in an action-packed turn-based squad tactic RPG extravaganza. Embark on an extensive campaign, completing challenging missions as you fight your way through the expansive Marvel Universe, collect valuable loot, enhance the powers of your favorite characters, and level up to acquire new gear, unlock formidable attacks and abilities, and customize your characters with costumes inspired by the most infamous storylines. Did that get your attention? As we speak, Marvel Strike Force is celebrating its six-year anniversary. But here's the real kicker. New users signing up through our link and using the promo code MAXPOOL get an exclusive treat. You'll instantly add the Merc with the Mouth Deadpool to your roster, complete with character shards, an anniversary diamond orb, and gear. Also, please note that these sponsorships help support the production and the hours we put into creating content for you. So downloading this game, using the link in the description, and giving it a try would help out this podcast immensely. The game is free, and using the code MAXPOOL gets you a ton of free starting loot, so you got nothing but to gain for giving the game a try right now. Thank you once again to Marvel Strike Force for sponsoring this episode. So that was a thing. That was definitely a thing. I, I think I'm getting the mechanic of the mask down. It's just very confusing. So having the mask out makes you invisible to the animatronics, it seems. But there's this rabbit that will constantly be following you. And if it catches you, it then alerts them to where you are. Am I in the right track there? So, how do I describe this in the best way possible? Security Breach Ruins gameplay is, effectively, Bendy and the Ink Machine, if somehow made more slow and annoying. Okay, to properly express my frustration, consider FNAF's role in indie horror's renaissance. It started a trend and revolution in mascot horror, not just through its story and horror concept, that was part of its appeal, but wasn't its initial main draw. Its unique selling point was the unique blend of contradictory gameplay, where mechanics challenge players' instincts and stacks the odds against them. The original FNAF masterfully balanced the power mechanic. It was a timer that determined how long you could stay alive, but cruelly forced you to drain your equivalent of health in everything you did. Everything from cameras, your vision, lights, your awareness, and doors, your defense, have a power cost that chip away at how long you could defend yourself. This creates a tense yet engaging gameplay loop, one that is jarring and tense at first, but challenges the player in mastering and improving their tactics with the game's mechanics. As the game gets harder each night, it forces the player to reciprocate by improving their skills, thus allowing them to feel accomplished for beating the game. 
The horror of the game, ironically, was not what made the original FNAF great. It was the bolstering of the simple yet engaging mechanics that made it so rewarding to beat. This design concept persisted across every single FNAF title. FNAF 4 had doors forcing players to face danger directly and made every decision a chance to live or die. FNAF 2 went all in on the hectic game design, to the point that it probably was the quickest game to erode all sense of horror. And FNAF 3 had players use cameras to monitor and manipulate spring traps movements, though relying on cameras increased hallucination vulnerability, effectively making you a sitting duck. FNAF also ingeniously integrated jump scares as a fail state. Nobody likes jump scares and actively tries to avoid them at all costs. To many in horror, they are cheap or unfair tactics with no finesse or clever building of tension. Instead of repeatedly invoking a sense of danger through loud noises or sudden streaming images throughout the game, FNAF tied them to player death. This approach upheld the player's responsibility for getting jumped and maintained the impact of sudden scares, supported by Scott's masterful atmospheric tension. This tension persisted even after being jump-scared for your first time. You may now know what happens when an animatronic gets you, but you still want to avoid it because you don't want to fail and get jump-scared because of how sudden it is. This is how Finance of Freddy's was born. This was how it became popular, and this is the gameplay it should never, ever try to take away from itself. Regrettably, both Secured Breach and Ruin not only neglect these foundational gameplay principles, but also fail to evolve them in any meaningful way. C consider this. What truly distinguishes Secured Breach and Ruin's gameplay from the original Bendy and the Ink Machine, hell, or even the Slender games from 2012? Oh, graphics have improved significantly from that time period, but interactive media hinges on gameplay rather than visuals. If a game is lacking in engaging mechanics and satisfying feedback, why make a visually stunning game instead of a captivating movie? What warrants your story being in an interactive medium if it doesn't capitalize on it? Oh, you want to hear the hard truth? Poppy Playtime, a cash crab game riding on mascot horror's coattails, boasts a more unique gameplay style and movement system than Steel Wool Security Breach or Ruin. Now, I'm not praising Poppy Playtime as a good game, far from it given its numerous issues, but at least it has a more solid foundation compared to what Steel Wool is doing with FNAF. None of Security Breach's base mechanics are truly worth writing home about. The camera proves pointless as animatronics teleport regardless, and they don't offer enough awareness of the way too numerous staff bot patrols. It's often better and quicker to charge through sections without stealth or caution. And once you acquire the Fazer Blaster or Fazcam, the game practically becomes a breeze. Hiding becomes unnecessary and you are rendered nearly unkillable. This is why many jestingly dubs Security Breach as a walking simulator. After all, according to game theory, no, not the one you're thinking about, when players discover a solution to a problem in your game that they not only find is foolproof, but easy and repeatable, they are always going to implement that solution. And if nothing rises to challenge the player in this habit they are forming with your game, it will quickly become boring. 
Ruin only reinforces this notion despite dressing it up in stunning visuals. The gameplay, while more streamlined with no exploration, boils down to two categories. Camera puzzles interspersed with 10 second delays every 15 seconds to evade the eerie digital rabbit monster, and navigating around the dreadfully incompetent animatronic AI. Let's start with the primary gameplay mechanic involving the Vanny Mask, the node puzzles. Throughout the DLC, you'll encounter areas with no clear path ahead. This will usually prompt players to complete a node puzzle, indicated if there is a glitching rabbit head in AR mode with several triangles orbiting around it in the area. This puzzle requires players to use the Vanny Mask and follow a trail of cords from the rabbit head that leads to corresponding objects. Simply locate them, reach them, and hold E for 3 seconds to deactivate however many of them are in the area. A similar but different puzzle involves the player using camera stations while wearing the Vanny Mask. In essence, this is just a simplified version of the node puzzle, as it just involves finding anomalies on the cameras, which are symbols representing security breaches characters or items, and this proves pretty easy, as the cameras will alert you with a giant banner if an anomaly is in the camera, there is only one per each camera, and the only challenge is that if there are multiple, the player will have to find and deactivate them in a certain order. Successfully completing a node or anomaly puzzle will cause a nearby object to no longer be solid in AR, allowing you to pass through it freely, or simply open a path forward in some manner. These challenges, as Markiplier aptly describes it in his playthrough, are almost insultingly easy. It never escalates in difficulty, just in length. Now, the counter to this is that in Sizzle Location or Help Wanted, the puzzles there were also pretty easy for a player to understand. But the point in that was because the challenge of the puzzle was completing them with an active threat. Recall, the reason Vent Repair and Help Wanted are amazing segments is that while the puzzles in them are easy, the challenge comes from quickly learning what each puzzle requires of you, while also warding off Mangler Ennard from catching you off guard. Steel will develop Help Wanted, so they know this is something they have to do if they want their puzzles to be challenging. So they implement a catch to ruins puzzles as well, related to the Vanny Mask, and that is the glitching rabbit, George. I know, its actual name is MXES, or the MXES security system, but I refuse to acknowledge or respect this stupid character or concept for existing, so I'm just going to call him George throughout the review. At any point in the game, if you continuously wear the Vanny Mask for around 15 or 20 seconds, a loud stinger sound will be made which indicates that George has spawned in and that he is currently coming after you. This happens regardless if a puzzle is involved or not, and because almost every puzzle revolves around the Vanny Mask, there is often no compelling reason to take it off. Steel will recognize this, which is why George is meant to be a deterrent against prolonged mask use. The issue lies in the fact that George can be easily handled through various methods, rendering him a neutered threat even in sections meant specifically to give him an edge on the player. George moves at a snail's pace when out of your line of sight, ironically the reverse way of how he should move, enabling easy evasion in mask-required sections. When you can freely toggle AR mode on and off, George becomes a minor inconvenience because he only exists when the Vanny mask is on. He also disappears after about 10 seconds when the mask is off. 
So with little to no threats in the game besides him, this gives you the liberty to outweigh him each and every time, transforming the threat into more of an annoying, arbitrary wait time. Once you grasp George's AI behavior, the challenge all but ceases to exist, and the gameplay suffers as George's only benefit of the game is dragging down its pace. Like I said with game theory, once a player understands how George's AI works, they're going to abuse the hell out of him, and without any challenge about how they go about dealing with him, the game quickly becomes boring. Steelwool does attempt to create certain sections where George is made difficult for the player to contend with, but these sections are either A, sections where George activates a security system that doesn't like to take the mask off, so you just have to deactivate that before you do what you've always been doing, or B, George doesn't do anything new, but just becomes a timer before he spawns another animatronic in to kill you. This same criticism also applies to the pipe charging door puzzle that is used repeatedly throughout the game. While this is initially a fun and interesting concept, it becomes laughable because of the game's AI. The lack of challenge stems from the absence of any threat to the player so long as you avoid wearing the mask for too long. So, as a player, you just become accustomed to spamming the mask on and off in order to get your bearings in the AR world while also not giving a chance for George to spawn. So because there is no threat hunting you down for about 75% of the game, the pipe charging door puzzle evokes more like a way to artificially prolong gameplay rather than a genuinely tense puzzle where players always have to be ready in case the game demands them to perform it under pressure. In reality, the only time the game offers this is on the final pipe charging puzzle at the end of the game, which was not only made more simpler than any other version of the puzzle, the animatron chasing you purposely slows down so you can beat it. The main issue that surrounds this puzzle, which is always the biggest issue with Security Breach, is the animatronic simplistic rudimentary AI. While the original FNAF animatronics never had the most sophisticated or complex AI, the gameplay they offered was straightforward and comprehensible with a challenge originating from contradictory gameplay mechanics and testing your mastery of said mechanics. The main issue with Steelwall's AI is the simplicity of their behavior. In the base game of Security Breach, as an example, upon spotting you, animatronics instantly pursue a player until they leave their field of vision. Despite three animatronics hunting the player down and two special enemies in the form of the daycare attendant and Vanny, their search methods were all identical. Even if one could call the mechanics searching, they don't really investigate or adapt to whatever the player is doing. And since their AI is all effectively the same, the game never requires the player to change tactics or think and engage to critically overcome challenges. At best, Monty was immune to stun mechanics, up until the later half of the game when Roxy took over the mantle of that challenge with the exact same behavior. But does this really change how a player is going to play the game? In Security Breach, there's little incentive to refrain from sprinting constantly, barring stamina limitations. Did Ruin resolve this problem? Well, sprinting is eliminated, that's for certain. While it's not removed, it's evident early on that Cassie's sprint speed is way slower than Gregory's, and her stamina depletes much faster. Unlike Gregory, Cassie can't enhance her stamina or speed with upgrades, 
meaning players will be encumbered with this lumbering movement speed throughout the whole game. While this does result in every chase sequence having you move slower than what feels intended, as Amtrunk speed is also slowed down to compensate for yours, and this does become particularly evident when a player runs out of stamina and has to wait for it to recharge while an animatronic is still coming for you, this change could work if the game demanded deliberate, cautious movement for success throughout the whole game. If the gameplay loop is based on a more slow and methodical approach to animatronics, luring them around a room to allow you to pass them without being seen, all of these changes could have worked. However, as it turns out, like many of Steelwall's solutions, it's half-baked and undone. The issue is that the game's primary challenge centers around camera and node puzzles along with George. If George approaches and you can't remove the mask, if he catches you, he will summon an animatronic to attack, similar to what the staff bots did in Security Breach. Now, it is less offensive than in Security Breach where the animatronic's teleportation is so blatant and immersion breaking. Here, at least, George usually just spawns them off screen around a few corners. George's mechanics also effectively function as a timer, as if he does summon a bot and you don't take the mask off in time, it will trigger the nearest robot to teleport directly on top of you once time runs out, resulting in an instant jump scare. Firstly, it's crucial to note that the game's handling of jump scares significantly erodes immersion and fails to build up any form of tension. Whenever I find myself dying due to George's Exodia summons, confusion always overtook any form of fear. This is mainly because George having a timer is never made clear to the player, and the player will only realize the mechanic after dying a few times, so when a player does die this way, they are left more confused than anything. This experience was reminiscent of when I played Post Shift 2 for the first time. While that game, similar to Security Breach, was gorgeous graphically, it failed to be successful in being a horror game due to how confusing its mechanics were, and the fail state to the player. The mechanics and how you're losing the game takes up way too much space in the player's mind to the point they have no room to allow fear to even enter into it. When George summons the animatronic or if a player is trapped within a room with a rune bot and needs to maneuver around it, the challenge feels almost inconsequential. Rune's solution to the AI pretty much results in every robot getting the Roxanne treatment, because they are all blind as hell. Ruined animatronics lack any form of spatial awareness, failing to locate you even when you are feet beside them and out in the plain open. I'm not sure this is an improvement over Security Breach's animatronic AI. Sure, their vision there was really random, ranging from not spotting you on an object right next to them to somehow spotting Gregory behind an arcade cabinet across the map, but the main problem was and always was that they never behaved in a way that challenged the player nor do they act in any manner unique to one another. Monty's underwater section pretty much summarizes every problem the AI encapsulates and how the game suffers when George isn't present. Once a player gets the Pizza Flex sewers, they are confronted by Monty who hides underwater, and ahead of them are floating platforms to hop over across to avoid the water. The player gets this loud splash noise whenever they land in the water, which would initially cause them to panic because they have probably played a game before where the AI would naturally be aware of the location because of this. But as it turns out, Monty moves at a snail's pace, and the player will probably be just fine so long as they sprint. And that's even if Monty notices the player at all. 
it ruins the point of using the platforms, let alone even including the section at all, given how easy it is for a player to just cheese it. Compare this section to the Indo Warehouse in Security Breach, where the player encounters a new threat that behaves drastically different compared to every other bot. The player is introduced to the Endo's mechanics intelligently by having one active ahead of a player in a large hallway, allowing the player to mess around and comprehend the mechanics the Endo presents, that being that the naked Endo can't move if you are staring at it. This section then becomes more and more hectic as the game forces the player into situations where more Endos keep getting added into smaller and smaller rooms, with even more challenge coming from strategically placed buttons in precise areas to either force players to look away momentarily or challenge them to get creative with their positioning. It's one of, if not the, best section of Security Breach. They introduce a new gameplay element, and they run with it. Then, as the player becomes attuned to it, increase the challenge at an even pace. But if the game just had the Endos react whenever a player opened a door, and just had them wander around aimlessly until they get some form of trigger to your presence, then tell me, how different would this gameplay be from what the base game is already offering. The animatronic's ability to detect the player just feels arbitrary and random. Steel will recognize this this problem, but like a doctor who has no idea what they are doing and comes across an open wound, their solution is a mere bandage to the problem. In this case, to counteract the animatronic's passive AI, the game assigns them a surrounding radius instead. Simply getting too close to animatronic will prompt a jump scare even if escape was plausible and there was no feasible way they would catch you. Not like this will occur half the time because most of your deaths will probably be from George playing support and teleporting robots on top of you to compensate for their crappy AI. Another half-baked solution in the Steel Wool style. So, in summary, the gameplay in Ruin is slow, repetitive, non-challenging, and not engaging in the slightest. The AI is the dumbest the series has ever seen. The gameplay loop is way more repetitive without any form of skill ceiling to the gameplay, and it takes no inspiration or cues from the games of the original series. So, if you were to ever return to this game, you wouldn't be coming back for the gameplay. I mean, the glitchy state of Security Breach ironically has more replay value than Ruin's more stable launch. So the only reason you would ever return to this game is the same reason you'd rewatch a movie or reread a book. The story. Because the problem with this game is that regardless of ending, there's no way to really salvage it because it doesn't really build on anything the previous game did. It's, it tries to do its, it really tries to do its own thing, which would work if Secure Breach was a self-fulfilling story, but it's not. It's clearly a game that needs more parts to it. And instead they're just, or like ignoring that. So, I mean, I, I don't know. Finally, we've come to the critical juncture. The aspect that the online Twitter and Fred FNAF community staunchly defends and would stand their ground for murder, harass, and cancel if you find any flaw in. The story. To assert that the narrative writing in the modern FNAF series has surpassed the nuanced, sometimes too cryptic for its own good, yet captivating Golden Age FNAF lore would be far from the truth. 
The distinction lies in the puzzle-like nature of the earlier game's narratives. The lore was something only you could mostly solve, though a few puzzle pieces remained missing, building an enigma that subsequent releases would further unfold. But this was somewhat of the charm of it. This created an exhilarating and addictive narrative cycle, with each new installment bringing more information and plot points to both the backstory and the current plot. Contrastingly, modern FNAF lore resembles an entirely different beast. However, whereas the original series deliberately didn't include puzzle pieces, here the pieces are deliberately mismatched. What makes it even more criminal is that by taking a closer look at the puzzle's packaging, you discover optional expansion packs for $9.99 each. However, despite it being marketed as optional, these packs contain the very pieces you need to complete the main focus and main draw of the puzzle. I'm sorry, I know some people may be sick and tired of me bringing this up, but it's imperative to address the anti-consumer practices that have emerged in this new phase of FNAF. Astonishingly, this issue has largely gone unnoticed by the broader FNAF audience, but this just cannot be ignored anymore. For a brief moment, there was some goodwill towards the Tales books, as the necessity for the books to comprehend story spanning three different AAA games is unequivocally and objectively poor storytelling. I mean, could you imagine them not including these crucial plot points, exposition, and lore in a story where these concepts aren't introduced? I mean, imagine if, in Star Wars, you had to watch all seven seasons of The Clone Wars to make sense of the prequels. While it is true, both exist within the same franchise and universe, they should, at the very least, stand on their own without the reliance of one another. In FNAF's case, the prevailing belief and sentiment established within the original Silver Eyes novel trilogy, then reaffirmed through the Fazbear Fright series, has been that the main game storylines are self-sufficient, graspable, and enjoyable independently of any outside media. The books were designed to expand the world's mysteries, not to serve as prerequisites. I've seen numerous FNAF fans make the argument that some players don't read the books and thus can't comprehend Security Breach's story, yet don't realize that this by nature is acknowledgement of the underlying issue. The narrative is practically indecipherable without external media plugging the gaps, a glaring instance of terrible writing practice at best, and a fan base of hardcore gatekeeping at worst. Despite the intricacies in the golden age of FNAF's narrative, each game had its self-contained storyline. Yes, even FNAF 4, thanks to the crying child's cutscenes, presented an engaging mystery, albeit in a somewhat confusing timeline. FFPS was the only exception, as it did require knowledge of the preceding five games. The difference is that it was the culmination of the series, a literal finale to the franchise's main storyline as a whole. Even so, I don't think it is a stretch for a game to expect you to have already played and have the knowledge of the past installments before going into a new entry. This is also why the DLC in Ruin has a warning on the main menu screen, alerting players to play the base game before starting the DLC. While it still isn't new player friendly, as the entirety of Security Breach's narrative does adhere to even larger expectations in a way, considering it requires players to be familiar with the entire series storyline up to that point, we have to establish there is a clear difference to post-UCN Finance of Freddy's, which started mandating not only playing the games was required to follow the current narrative, but also how it started to rely on the novellas to explain what would be the equivalent of the game's visual storytelling and exposition. 
Ultimately, the books serve as a narrative crutch that, once taken away and once out of the equation, only serve to show the story's weak world-building and storytelling. And that is what the books are at the end of the day. They are a writing crutch, because whoever is in charge of story direction for these more massive game experiences for FNAF, whether it be Scott or some producer or writer at Steel Wool, they suck at world building and storytelling on this large of a scale. This is why Gregory's past is left mysterious, with no hints as to why in the games, but his past is revealed in the books. This is why Burntrap appears in the game out of nowhere, with a clear red herring in the form of the FFPS location, but in reality the twist was it being a completely different entity, which is something you can only discover through the books, or perhaps they are two separate entities, which would be even more egregious. I can keep going, guys. Glamrock Freddy and his ability to resist the Mimic's influence, but also hence being possessed by someone, either Michael or one of the Avalon victims, yet no hints as to who the possessor really is. The Blob literally just exists, and either has your pick a plot hole as to why Molten Freddy has different parts to what the scrap trunks had, or is another completely unexplained entity. Roxy somehow is under the Mimic's influence, yet in Ruin has the capability to think for herself, despite Monty and Chica being the equivalent of brain-dead zombies with no emotions. Clamrock Bonnie disappearing and being decommissioned is a mystery with a lot of build-up and hints in the base game, but turned out to lead to nowhere in the DLC as the obvious conclusion turned out to be true, and there was no resolution as to why Fazbear Entertainment just up and abandoned Bonnie at all instead of rebuilding him or slapping another shell on a different endo. How and why do the Princess Quest minigames have any influence on the world, especially considering Ruin implies this to be the true canon ending of Security Breach, despite being the dumbest when you really break it down to what actually happens in it? I mean, of course, it makes perfect sense that in Ruin there is an ending where Cassie goes insane and imagines escaping the pizza plex and eating ice cream on a hill with Gregory and Vanessa. Oh, but Gregory using an actual arcade cabinet to break supernatural mind control. Oh, that's canon, baby. Speaking of dumb, there's also lack of characterization and utility of Vanny whose personality, goals, and intelligence fluctuate drastically depending on who you're talking to, as well as the two-year buildup for a new villain that was later completely overshadowed and replaced by the mimic. And, of course, the problem that surrounds the entirety of the post-UCN era of FNAF which is why anyone would revitalize the Fazbear brand in the first place, given in 2023 it was seen as a despondent place with multiple incidents and tragedies that were surrounded by urban legends. A brand in a music park would buy to create a horror attraction out of? Believable. A brand with multiple, recorded, incidents of missing or murdered children and on record negligence of core business practices that somehow, in a short span of time, has more money than God? Sloppy world building. Look, you could point out how FNAF has mysteries in the past that were never resolved, or that the original games also had plot holes, like the Night Guard returning after multiple nights, which were later retconned to have more context with Michael Afton. But that's the thing I don't understand. How come in any other franchise, a plot hole or crappy story direction is a flaw that needs to be corrected? Yet in FNAF, it's a feature, because it allows you to just imagine a different narrative in your head. That existed in the earlier years of FNAF? Absolutely. But the series has gotten so big that it no longer can exist anymore. It has evolved to have main characters, overarching narratives, and a storyline that spans multiple generations and decades. There is no rational, objective argument to be made for these decisions beyond two choices. Either the series is getting milked for everything it is worth because of its rabid fanbase which is obsessed with its lore, 
so it purposely hides key components of the story in outside media, a choice I prefer not to believe in due to my respect for Scott, or an overcorrection from past book series mistakes and an overreach of what expanded universe material can and should influence the direction of the main attraction of the series, the video games. I prefer the latter option, as it feels more on brand with Scott. Be honest with yourself for once, those who like Ruin or the Mimic. How on earth does anyone remotely know what is going on in Ruin without the Tales epilogues? If you were to play Security Breach from start to finish, you think William Mapton had returned and was taken by the Blob, and Gregory and Freddy escaped with Vanny on the loose. How do you rationally assume how those players, who may not be on Twitter or Fred at 24-7, will actually know about the Mimic or that Fanny had her mind freed and ruined? If the answer is the books, please enlighten me on where in the game or anywhere from Scott or a developer from Steelwool does it say you must read the Tales from the Pizzaplex series to enjoy this game. The answer is it doesn't. Therefore, the only conclusion is that the writing of the games can't stand on its own merits and has to rely on others to come in and tack on extra details they forgot to put in, in order for the story they want to tell to even be coherent. Not that it is even remotely special at all. The Mimic, the new main villain of this era, is the most boring villain to exist in the franchise. Oh, what's this? A robot whose programming forces it to murder humans, including children, through various gruesome, torturous, and evil means? That's Funtime Freddy without the showmanship or personality. But it also manipulates others by appearing trustworthy, luring its prey into a false sense of security while pretending to be someone you know. That's William Afton, without the horror of it being a human being capable of performing such inhumane and morally egregious actions. But it strings people along to make you do its bidding without you realizing it's going to betray you. That's Circus Baby. But it's a testament of how terrifying robots are and the extent of AI prog fun times or the toys. Take your pick. Now, I'm not saying the mimic by itself isn't a fun or cool horror monster. A creature able to mimic voices and use predator tactics to hunt you down will always be a creepy concept. And the backstory the mimic gets in the books, besides the epilogues, is really cool and well-written and expands upon its programming and elaborates more on how this robot thinks, given its basic function of simply observing, recording, and repeating. In this current era when it comes to AI, the concept of an AI not fully understanding actions it is observing, recording, and repeating, just simply performing them naturally because it was just programmed to do so, is a terrifying concept. The problem is that while it is a compelling monster, it can't be used again because it is completely one note. William himself was also one note, don't get me wrong, but he is a human with a background, a psychopath who is engaging because it makes you wonder what made this man so broken and evil he would take it out on children. The mimic is, literally, just an object performing an action with no concept of broader thinking. It is only doing what it is programmed to do. But hey, your theory was right. The Mimic was in the game, and you cried and clapped when you saw it. Now, with all that said and done, 
I, I don't want to come across as being completely negative or unfair to the positives of the game stories. While the negatives absolutely outweigh the positives, there are some points worth praising. First and foremost, Cassie. She is a fantastic character and a way better POV protagonist than Gregory. She has a sweet and kind personality, her backstory is relatable, and her connection to Gregory and the Pizzaplex is unironically quite sad, but very wholesome. I like the fact that the game utilizes visual storytelling through the AR mask to communicate why Cassie would be so courageous in trying to help Gregory. That being Gregory was her closest and possibly only friend. The only person who came to her birthday party, where Roxy also became her favorite character because of how much time she spent with her on her birthday. Speaking of Roxy, even though the game should have offered some exposition or reasoning as to why Roxanne is suddenly more resistant to the mimic's influence or just simply was never affected by it beyond her crying in the mirror that one time, her relationship with Cassie was adorable, but also one that should have been reinforced more throughout the game. Perhaps including more sections with Roxy where Cassie has ample opportunity to destroy her, but the character refuses and takes the action away from the player. It would have been a better overall way to communicate a closer bond, as the game kind of just removes all ambiguity of it up until the moment you got to kill her. Utilizing Gregory's comics was a fun way to communicate to players which ending was canon, along with retooling of the inventory system with every item now having a description from Cassie's perspective, which both helps flesh out her character, but also makes the collectibles a little bit more worth it compared to Security Breach, wherein you are just effectively collecting in PNGs and nothing more. Uh, the use of Helpy, while annoying, and absolutely removed any semblance of surprise from the twist at the end, given Stewell's ingenious decision to make an entirely different Helpy graphic to communicate the players it has been hacked and isn't trustworthy, something you can notice in the first 10 seconds being introduced to him, he was still a fun addition. In fact, the meta use of the video game quest tracker was really well done. I like the hypnotic messaging in the current taskbar, and how it can sometimes say really leading or strange things that can make you doubt if the actions of Cassie is her own or someone else's. Now, it's no Bioshock, would you kindly, but that would require a payoff of some sort, but it's still a fun little detail that keen-eyed players can pick up on. One final detail I saved to the end because it makes me even more furious is the fact that the game also gives ample hints that the thing is an AR experience and wasn't real at all. Now, Tales from the Pizzaplex set this up. They have done the story effectively three times now, and this would be the fourth time we have done it, and it is arguably the worst use of it. I don't know why they thought this was a good idea to do, given how it isn't how the books utilize AR. Then again, the books also can't differentiate AR and VR half the time. Look, at, at the end of the day, it doesn't matter. The story of Ruin is unsatisfying to literally anyone outside of the hardcore FNAF fanbase. You just have to watch a montage of people react to the ending of Security Breach that aren't part of the FNAF community. Once you leave the bubble, you realize how very few found the ending satisfying, and the experience itself too short without enough there to warrant the time investment. But hey, can you be mad when the game is free? Yes, I can when the game tries its best to tell a story that tells me if I want the answer to the story, I must buy the next book 
or the next game coming out soon. At that point, it feels less like Steelwool are trying to appease the fanbase that they cheated, and more like they are marketing the next project in the guise of an apology. Look, I'm not going to claim stances like Michael Afton was an incredibly crafted character, or that FNAF storytelling was a flawless masterpiece. However, its narrative structure was cohesive and self-sustaining. The games progressively built upon each other with a creatively presented storyline supported by solid exposition, immersive world-building, and inventive minigames. FNAF's essence lays in its gameplay, atmosphere, and engaging mysteries, accessible to a wide range of players. However, the franchise has now distinctly narrowed its focus to dedicated FNAF enthusiasts exclusively. And in this new direction, what does it offer the next generation of fans? The original FNAF was straightforward enough to serve as many players entry into horror gaming, while also unique enough to draw them in. Compare this to the gameplay of Secure Breach and Ruin. Would newcomers generally choose this over the alternatives available in 2023, such as the Silent Hill 2 remake, Alone in the Dark, Reveil, or Unholy? Even if they do, will they remember it fondly, considering the confusing back-and-forth navigation within the oversized map? Would they come back for the story given how unforgiving it is to the uninitiated? FNAF's original essence was in its desolate and hushed atmosphere, where even the slightest noise felt like it could resonate throughout a building full of uncanny monsters. Conversely, modern games exude excessive brightness and rely on numerous cheap jump scares not based on the player's performance, transforming the experience into a guided ride rather than an immersive venture where every move could be fatal. Instead of staying true to its roots, the series' groundbreaking gameplay, which birthed its own genre and has dominated the fan-made game scene since 2015, it regrettably has now chosen a pedestrian, safe gameplay style that fails short of contemporary expectations, one that panders to a younger and younger audience, rather than growing alongside its audience in any meaningful way. Even the story, once the captivating force that held the FNAF community together has ironically become what it was often ridiculed for, needlessly intricate. It intentionally misleads its audience and has adopted anti-consumer tactics that aim to extract more money for the complete security breach experience and those looking to understand all of FNAF's story. I won't take away Steelwell's passion, nor do I want those who have made it this far to believe I think Steelwell are incompetent aren't capable of making great games. If there's one thing that is present in every modern FNAF-era game, it is charm, passion, and a desire to make something great. But charm and passion can only get you so much goodwill. There comes a time when players will begin asking, how many second chances can we give if all they receive are disappointing entries and unfamiliar experiences that don't recapture the feeling of the original series? All they can offer is, simply put... An experience. An experience that, once you look at it from an objective point of view, you realize it is unsustainable for a healthy franchise, and a disappointing path for a series that deserves way better. To sum up my conclusion of Secure to Breach Ruin, while it met story expectations on paper, it lacked finesse. 
especially in regard to its story leaving those unfamiliar with the lore perplexed. Key mysteries and cliffhangers from the base game remained unanswered, or the resolutions were mundane or bewildering, hinting at a lack of foresight from the writers. The gameplay lacks originality, replay value, or engaging gameplay. It doesn't justify its 5-hour span as a worthwhile gaming experience. The horror tactics used are basic and gimmicky, striving to create tension but ultimately damaging the fragile atmosphere they're trying so hard to build. And with everything said and done, looking ahead, the question arises. Where does the story even go? While the mimic was introduced, its potential seems to have peaked in this game. The narrative now faces a challenge as Scott and Stu will have confined themselves to the Pizzaplex setting, putting all their eggs in one basket for the past three years, leaving little room for further expansion or exploration beyond it. The series is noticeably declining, and the sad part is that the fandom doesn't appear concerned. If you were to go onto Twitter at this moment, you would see amazing artwork, incredible developers, and theorists and fans relishing being right about their theories while failing to see how their stance, along with the games, regrettably, has deterred potential new fans from even giving the series a chance. People watch this fandom celebrate its series in open arms, and when they experience it, all they get is a game that offers nothing unique besides the brand name. FNAF has transformed into a punchline for the broader gaming community, a stark contrast to the respected gain from the era between FFPS through Help Wanted. When Security Breach launched, the laughter from the gaming community was palpable. Yes, Markiplier stated he enjoyed his time with it, and if you enjoyed your time with it, this doesn't make it an objectively good product. After all, one man's trash will always be another man's treasure. Hell, I collect Skylanders. I have an entire shelf of them, and I know that game was a scam for children. And from all of this, an essential query emerges, a question that many regarded after the dust settled from the original release of Security Breach. Could Security Breach have been considered a good game, even without the glitches? Well, this is precisely the experience Ruin offers. A glitch-free, but less memorable version of Security Breach, devoid of the very element that made it stand out, its initial broken state. King Carter, the developer of the Fanverse Initiative game Pop Goes Evergreen, captured his sentiments on Twitter beautifully, and I believe his words encapsulate my viewpoint on the current state of FNAF as well. Quote, Seeing Ruin makes me think that Steelwell absolutely loves the FNAF characters, but really doesn't want to make FNAF games. They want to make bright, badass, cinematic experiences. Freddy as a mech, Bonnie as a sentient glitch virus, Vanny's mask as a portal to an AR matrix dimension. Of course, Scott may have a huge part in this, but these concepts obviously fit the game design and 3D engine of Steelwool, rather than what Scott was originally making. So this isn't really what made FNAF unique, scary, popular, though I know plenty of people love it. Ruin is obviously an improved experience over Security Breach, mechanically, but I'm uncomfortable with all of these new additions to FNAF's world building. FNAF now effectively has made noclip canon, and the community's response is mostly, just don't think about it, the game is fun, which is hard to accept when I fell in love with FNAF for its mysteries, paranormal, but fairly realistic world. 
Springtrap is the coolest concept I've ever seen in a video game. An Iron Maiden, animatronic costume punishing a serial killer that originally wore it to manipulate children. That is FNAF for me. And I don't see the current era of FNAF as an evolution of it. It's just a different series. End quote. I agree. It's just an altered series now. And the truth is evident. In Ruin, Steelwall essentially amplified the very direction that was severely criticized in Security Breach, abandoning everything that made FNAF the franchise it was, and disregarding all the people who stuck by it all these years, instead moving on to a broader, younger, and more impressionable audience. Well, Ruin itself obliterated any chance I had of finding solace in the series' future trajectory. I'm... I'm at my limit. My patience with Steelwool has reached its end. Yes, I committed to cover Ruin as I did with Security Breach. And I will honor those commitments. And I'll assess my stance when the time is right for Help Wanted 2. But... I'm done. I, I, I can't endorse the series' current path any longer. Nor can I support Steelwool maintaining control over it. Ruin marks my final FNAF game. However, it wasn't a peak, nor even a sweep as my final adventure in the interactive FNAF world, but a subdued whimper which shattered my remaining hopes for Freddy's. Who knows? With time, Ruin might be viewed as the juncture when FNAF truly embarked on a irreversible path. Or Perhaps this will be a turning point for the series for a new generation of fans to experience games that, while they no longer appeal to the veterans of the series who made it so prominent, can at least make others happy. Happy anniversary, Finance of Freddy's. It's been a good nine-year run. Thank you so much for listening. If you'd like to stay updated, please consider subscribing, following, or sharing this podcast. It truly helps us broaden our reach. Consider following us on our Twitter at Fazbear Podcast, joining on our Discord, or supporting us on our Patreon or merch store using the various links in the description below. Thank you to my good friend That One Boyo, who ironically loves Ruin and Secure Breach, and helped me write the script and provided a more positive perspective for the game for me. And as always, I have been your host, Nick, and I would like to thank you all once again for listening. Have a good night, and drive home safe. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. 
that crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.